Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, hey. It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today, we are speaking to the founder of the Miracle Foundation. She has won the Hope Award, the Impact Award, the United Nations Humanitarian Award. She was raised in a poor family, but rich in love. Carolyn Boudreau, welcome. I am curious about your TV days. I did hear you mention that in the interview with Dr. Gale. I know that was kind of what led to you traveling the world and completely changing your career path. But take me back before all of that. Like, what was your childhood like? What's Louisiana like? All of that. I want to know like your whole story. Rena, I'm just one of the lucky ones. I mean, I grew up in a small Catholic family. It was just the nine of us. And yeah, and I had, my dad was a a pharmacist and my mom was a social worker. She placed adoptions for the state of Louisiana. So she was a social worker and just was deeply loved and cared for. And, you know, not a lot of money, but a lot of love. And we were rich in, in culture, in that great Cajun culture of all this food, all this fun, all this laughter and all these jokes. And it was just a great way to grow up. Nine right children, way. just the nine of us. You don't yeah. hear that often. Wow. Oh, yeah. It was uh, seven kids and two parents, but we were living, we lived in this little tiny house and it was like kind of war while we were living there, but now we're all just best friends. It's great. What and number so, are you? I'm the sixth of seven. So I'm like one of the younger ones. Oh yeah. my it gosh. Was it, was so, it was so fun. It was so fun. And then when I graduated from college, I moved to Austin because I thought Austin was so cool and hip. I wanted to go get my PhD there, but I didn't get accepted into the program. So I applied for the program and I didn't get accepted. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And so my boyfriend at the time was like, Caroline, you really should get into sales because you have a personality for sales. I was like, I do not want to do that. No way. He's like, well, you know what you should do? You should just go get some training. You know, I know Xerox has a good training program. Just go get some training for sales. And if you like it, great. And if you don't, no problem. But I think you can make a lot of money. And I think you would be really good at it. And so I was on my way to that first interview with Xerox. Remember Xerox? Remember that? Company? Yeah, of course. I don't even know what that is. That's a good company on. back in that's the day. Like, that's like Kodak, you know? <laughs> so I was on my way to an interview there. And I was in the elevator because I was working as a temporary. And this is in Austin. And I get on, this guy gets on the elevator. And he's like, oh, that's a, hey, that's a good looking suit you got on there. And I said, well, thank you. I'm on my way to an interview. So that gives me a little confidence. And he said, an interview for what? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to learn how to be a salesperson at Xerox. And he said, stay on the elevator, go back to the 23rd floor and please hand my wife your resume. We are looking, we need somebody to do sales for us. We have this tiny little TV station. We really need someone to help us with that. We're both engineers and it would just be so helpful. And so that's how I got into it. Amazing. And how long did you stay there? I got it on like on the ground floor and we ended up selling, which was successful. That made us all very successful. I guess for two years, I did that three years. I mean, you must've learned so much. This was like pre-automation. 
I learned so, so much and made so many beautiful contacts and connections and met so many people and really understood. I mean, I love being an entrepreneur. I loved building it as you go. I took a lot of those lessons learned. So then I went over and worked for CBS. CBS had bought that station. So I went over and worked for CBS and then we sold it again. So CBS sold it to Fox. And so then I started working for Fox for a while. And then I just got sick of the corporate world. It just wasn't entrepreneurial anymore. It was all about the numbers. It wasn't about the people. And that's when my friend and I went to have a couple margaritas, which is what you do in Austin, Texas. You go have margaritas. I want to dig just a little bit more into that because I have a similar story. I started off in radio. I went up to WGN for an interview, didn't get the role, saw a flyer that Jerry Springer was looking for interns and then ended up working in television. Oh my gosh. Did you start out at the Jerry Springer show? I did. Yes. For two and a half years as well. Oh my God. So what was, what did you take away from that, that you're just like, so glad you learned how to cast a good guest. Really? That has stayed with me until now, how to cast it. It led me to working in casting for years. Wow. That really genuinely be, cause you're so Cool. I mean, you're so genuinely interested. And I think people pick up on that. Oh, they definitely do. Absolutely. That is so cool that you did that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever met anybody that did that. That is so cool. What a great job. It, what's it called? Is it called producer? Yeah. So I was an associate producer and then I was a producer and then I moved out to LA and worked in post-production. So I've kind of seen all the sides of how you put something together, which is why I decided to start my own show. Cause I was like, Hey, I can book I the guests, yep. pick the topics, market them, write the summary, get it out there. Yeah. Out to sponsors. Like I've done all of the pieces. And, and I felt like if I showed others that I could do that, then I could help other people do it as well. That's so cool. It's such a great idea. It's so different. And you know, what has been like the unexpected goodness that has come from it is that people come to me now with either daddy issue stories or that their daddy has inspired them. So I've gotten a lot of those kind of stories, which is so cool. That was like an unexpected benefit. That is beautiful. You know, so with the work that we do with all these girls and all this inequality with girls, you know what, one of the things that just this ribbon that runs through them is every girl that has broken through, they've had some kind of man stand beside them. I mean, really it's, it, you know, we can't do this gender equality alone. And so when there, when there's a good dad out there, that'll help someone like you or me or a, a child that needs them move them along. We do need these strong men to help us break through. I hate to say that that's the ribbon. I mean, there's always somebody that just shows them that they can stand on their own two feet and helps them do that. Who's done that for you? I mean, my whole family, you know, I mean, I just came from a really, really strong family. I have a big brother that was really big for me. He was really good for me. He's, you know, always believed in me. Yeah. I mean, from the very beginning, I've had people like that. Yeah. Wow. And it really only takes one. You don't need a whole village. You, need, you just need one person to believe in you. Yeah. It is truly amazing. I mean, from the stories that I've now heard too, sometimes it can even be a teacher. Sometimes it can be an aunt. Yep. One person. Yeah. So I love that you're bringing your dad to the table because he can be that person for other people too. Yeah. What's interesting too, is some of my guests are like, whoa, your dad really pegged it right. He's lived through a lot. Yeah. I think adding another generation to it is a different perspective. Totally. He's also less filtered. (laughs) 
<laughs> do you have kids? I have four. Oh, oh, wow. Wow. How about you? No, I, I don't have any kids, but I love that, you know, you talked about the generation. So what do they think about this? I actually include them in my show. So my middle daughter and middle son, they are part of the intro. Sometimes I use them for transitions. If there's a guest that I'm interviewing that they happen to be interested in the subject matter, I'll have them ask a question. How old are they? I have a 13, 10, nine, and two. Oh just like you, you like to like mix things up on occasion. Yeah. So at 39, I decided to do that. <laughs> oh my gosh. How is the two-year-old? I just dropped him off at Playgroup before this. And I know that you work with an AI app for foster care. So we could transition there. You do do your research. That's right. We do. Because we can do so much better on the way we're caring for children that are separated from their families, Raina. I mean, what are we doing? Why are we letting these children languish? We got to do better. Okay. So we got to, we got to go back to your, at this news station. What, what did you learn there too? I want to know what that experience was like when you first started there, what did they have you do? And then what did that turn into? So it was all in sales. It was advertising sales, you know, it's okay. classic, typical, but one of the things that I learned and I kind of picked up on it right away, which I didn't understand why nobody else, why everybody else wasn't doing is I just was selling into franchises. There was state farm and they had one state farm office, but they had 40 state farm agencies in the, the viewing area. Or we had, you know, you talk to one McDonald's group and they managed the marketing for all the McDonald's. And so I was, I was working with very few people with very big budgets. I learned about franchising. I learned about franchising methodologies. And so then. Okay. I know nothing about that. So tell me. Well, look, you know, if every Starbucks runs exactly the same, you know what you're going to get. If you order a vanilla latte at any Starbucks in the world, it's going to be the same. There's a reason for that. They have a process. They have a procedure. They have a recipe for every single thing they're doing. And so when I started working with orphanages and visiting a bunch of different orphanages, I'm thinking, why are they all running so differently? Everybody's making everything up on the fly in an emergency situation. Where are the processes and procedures for how to run a great orphanage. They all need the same thing. Just like Starbucks, they all have the same ingredients. So the recipe is the same. So we found the Convention on the Rights of the Child, written by the United Nations in 1989, ratified by 183 countries. And what that document says is that all children on all continents have the same fundamental rights. And it lists out those rights. It's actually an inspired document. It is, it is beautiful that people really came to the table to not only agree on what children have the right to, but come up with what children have the right to. I mean, they have the right to be protected from abuse and neglect. They have the right to be heard and participate in decisions that affect them. They have the right to nutrition and electric power and clean water and education and the right to have spirituality and make complaints to an identifiable third party. So those were the ingredients in our franchise. And so we took each one of those things. We said, you know, that we all agree that these are what kids need. Now, how do we know if they're getting them? How do we measure against them? And how do we implement and activate each one of those rights? And so that's what we did. And we went, took this franchise methodology and we went to over 300 orphanages across India that were running the same exact way. Okay. We got to talk about how you got to India. Cause that's a fun part of the story. It, to me, it sounds like a Thelma and Louise moment. You're like, it was totally, we had a blast. We did everything but die in the end. 
I am so jealous. Okay, so you're working at this television station. You watched it get bought multiple times. I mean, yes. that is amazing too. And it's just corporate central. I mean, it was everything. We, we weren't punching the clock every day when we got in, but I mean, but that was, we saw the writing on the wall. That was almost the next step. I mean, it was just so corporate. And then on the other side, the spiritual side, you know, I kind of thought, what am I doing with my life? You know, I wasn't married, didn't have kids. You know, I was kind of a slave to the corporate culture, working 60, 80 hours a week, banking a ton of money. But it's like, what am I, where is the purpose here? What am I doing? I was 29, I was 29 when I started thinking, this is, I don't think this is, I think there's something bigger than I felt like that at 26, exact same things that you're saying. Like, I'm like, how many times do I need to see my name in the credits? You know, we talk about (laughs) our dad, but that's what my dad said to me. He said, you know, how many zeros you tell me how many zeros you have to have on that paycheck before you're going to feel like you've accomplished something. Cause it was just this more, 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 you know, that rat race. Yep. And I was the rat. (laughs) But a lot of people do it. We didn't know any different. I mean, I just kind of thought, you know, I kind of got just sucked into that world. And you know what? If I would have met the right man at the time, I'd have gotten sucked into that too. I'd have just gotten married and had kids and just kind of, you know, fallen asleep at the wheel and not really designed the life that I wanted to have. So, so we're at happy hour, we're drinking margaritas and I'm with my best friend and we're just talking and laughing. And actually we're complaining about our corporate jobs because she's getting the same job. I, I work with her. And we're like, let's just quit. She said, we should just quit our jobs and take a trip around the world. And I was like, don't say that twice because I think that is, I would do that. And she's like, you would do that. I was like, I would totally do that. Would you do that? Yeah. (laughs) So went back to her house, spread this world map on the floor and started picking the countries we wanted to visit. I'm jealous. I'm like, I want to do that now. Isn't that so fun? So fun. Yeah. So it was before 9-11. So it was still yep. real easy to kind of get around the world. We started picking the countries that we wanted to see. She wanted to go to India really bad because she'd been sponsoring a little boy there and she wanted to go meet him, which I thought was a bunch of bunk. How did she start doing that? She just saw it on television one night and just thought, I can do that. I can, you know, donate $40 a month or whatever they were asking at the time. And so, and she's like, you know, my kid, my kid that I sponsor, he's in India. Let's go see him. And I just did not want to do that. That was not the idea. It was not a philanthropic. It was not, that was not the trip that I was wanting to go on. I wanted to go party. I wanted to go see the world, get over to the other side of the world and stay there for a year. We, You're we, like, can we, we go to some exotic locations? Yeah. Please? I was like, what? we're going on safari. We're not going to, you know, Timbuktu. I mean, we're going on safari. We're going to have fun. But of course, I mean, she was so pumped about this kid. I was like, okay, fine. Let's go to India and we'll meet that kid. That's fine. It's like a whole trip around the world. We can, we can stop off in India. That's all right. One year, I can't remember how many countries at this point, but like maybe 19 or 20 countries we were going to visit. And we were going to go to India to meet that little boy. And we wanted to chase summer. We wanted to be in the same clothes, you know, the same summertime clothes for a whole year. And that was the plan. And we started in January of 2000, both quit our jobs and just got on that plan in January of 2000. So we started in South Africa, worked our way up to Africa, worked our way all the way up to Africa, did Egypt and Israel, and then went to India, got to India in May. Okay. I got to hear about some of like what was not expected because there are always things that happen when traveling that you could not have planned. Well, I mean, some things were really kind of interesting. So you know, she's not a morning, I'm a morning person. She's not a morning person. So I'd get her up in the morning. like, let's go. Look, you know, let, you know, she's like, don't ever wake me up. That's going to get this relationship. 
<laughs> don't ever wake me up. And so we just, you know, learning about how to be a true partner and how to be a good partner. It's like, I want to get up and get out, leave her there. That's fine. She, she, she doesn't feel like she's missing anything, you know? I so, love that. That is so true. Even in marriage, like I swear, I tell her, I tell her, she really taught me how to be a great partner. And then we had a, we had an agreement that we were not going to complain. There would be no complaining. There would be no gossiping about each other to anyone in the world. We, you know, any kind of problems we had with each other, we were going to bring to each other. So we kind of had these agreements that we talked about before we left. And so one night we're in Egypt, we're in the Sahara desert, so hot in the daytime, but it's freezing at nighttime. I mean, we had no idea how cold it was going to be. And we had a guide and, you know, but we were just freezing, but we had both made an agreement not to complain. So neither of us said anything to each other. And we wake up in the morning and they're like, how'd y'all sleep? And I said, you know, I, I did fine. I I was a little cold, but I did fine. I didn't want to complain. It's like, Oh, I have like 40 blankets in the truck. (laughs) So we had to learn the difference between complaining and reporting big difference. Those kinds of things were it was just fun. It was just I so love fun. that. I've actually been to Egypt. I hitchhiked from Israel to Egypt and walked across the border. You can't do that now. This was a long time ago too. I was like 19. Really did crazy. your dad know you did that? I mean, I hope he didn't. That is so dangerous. So oh you actually God. talking about Egypt. I've I've never been back and I actually don't necessarily feel like it's hundred percent safe to go there now. Yeah. Especially right. like that. But right. Yeah. Did you ever not feel safe anywhere or we made some real, you know, really stupid mistakes. You know, like when we were in Israel, we were wearing shorts, you know, and you're just not supposed to wear short, but we didn't know. And people were pretty rude to us and we didn't know why they were being rude until finally this lady said, you know, guys, you know, you really should not be wearing shorts in the the Holy city. Oh, well, I mean, like, where's the memo on that? Like, how do we not know that? You're like, where's the sign? Yeah. Where's the sign? So we went to a tailor and we got some pants made, you know, fine. But those kind of little things. And then the other one that was really funny to learn was we were in Egypt for like a month or something. And so we were taking the public transportation because that's one of the, we, you know, we wanted to eat local. We wanted to, everything. So we were taking public transportation and we were kind of getting, you know, felt up on the buses and subways. And I mean, it's like, it was just like, you know, we were just kind of getting mauled a little bit. So one day we'd been there for about three weeks. We're late. We jump on the very last car and lo and behold, it's a female only car. We were in, like, we were like asking for it. I mean, like we didn't know there was a female only car. <laughs> we were surrounded by these men. <laughs> we didn't know. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. Oh my God. There's a female. Oh. <laughs> yeah. There are some and cultural so, differences. Definitely. So our motto was who knew that was what we just, you know, that was our motto. Like who knew we didn't know. That's great. That's great. Yeah, it was fun. I feel like you have a good attitude about it. So that really probably helps. You got to have a sense of adventure if you're going to travel, right? As you know, you know, if you want everything to be like it is at home, then don't leave your house. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you decide to go quit your jobs, travel to 19 countries. Did you make it to all 19? No. So we ended up just getting tired. We were just tired. We were just done. It was just ready to have a refrigerator, fresh vegetables. You know, we, we, there were some things, but we started off in January. We, we ended up in um, India in May. We went to this very remote village to meet the little boy that she'd been sponsoring. He was real. 45 minutes off a of paved road. We're in this, I mean, in this village in the middle of nowhere, interior India village where this little boy was. Yeah. And how did you track him down? 
painfully. It was so painful. It was just so hard to track him down. In fact, it was, we, it was so, we almost didn't even go. It was just getting too ridiculous to try to figure out, which I of course thought the whole thing was a scam the whole time. And I'm thinking, see, Chris, it's a scam. It's a, and so she's trying to prove me wrong. I'm trying to say like, don't even bother send him a hundred bucks, you know? And so at one point kind of pivotal moment in the trip, we, we kind of get to the point where it's so frustrating. We're having so much time because there's all these different languages in India that you know, one group, one state doesn't speak the language of the next state. Can't, you know, can't find anybody that speaks this particular language. And at one point she says, okay, look, we'll just send money and just forget it. And I was like, no way. You have dragged me all the way. We, we're going if it's the last thing we do, but I'm, I'm not finding that kid. I'm finding that kid or I'm finding that he doesn't exist, but we're not going to stop now. And so that's, so we ended up going we found him. He had the first picture she had ever sent. I mean, it, he was real. It was happening. And we're what in this village. moment like, though? Oh, my God. It was National Geographic. Like, we're in the middle of nowhere. I cannot believe what we're seeing. I've never seen anything so interesting in my life. These mud huts, thatched roofs, you know, cows, you know, pumping water out of the well. Not everybody had electricity. I mean, it was just really, it was so, it was so great to be with them. It was like, this is the bottom of the pyramid. This is what we've been reading about. I can't believe we get to be here. And so we started doing volunteer work there every day. It was 119 degrees. So we found summer. We were looking for summer. We found <laughs> summer. You made use of those shorts. Yeah. Oh yeah. No shorts there either. We learned the short lesson by this point of the trip. One day, it was Mother's Day in the United States. It was May the 14th of 2000. Chris, my friend, Chris's mom had died the year before. So she really woke up not, she was sad. She was just really sad that day. And so I got up, I called my mom. We went to work in Manis's village all day with the little kids and at 119 degree heat. And then a local invited us to his house for dinner. And so we went to dinner and we walked into his, his uh, orphanage. And that's where I realized what real poverty was. You know, I thought I was looking at poverty because they had dirt floors and thatched roofs and mud huts, but poverty is when no one loves you. Oh, yeah. That's what poverty is. And so it wasn't that the people that were running that orphanage were bad people at all. They just had no resources. And I mean, human, they didn't have human resources. They didn't have financial resources. You know, there were probably three people that were working there and there were 110 little kids. 110 little 110 little empty looking like nothing going on empty looking bald children that's a lot of kids it was so many kids it was so many kids they were all just so obedient which you know you can't be naughty if you're hungry you're just existing and so we had dinner with them and then we had a beautiful hindu prayer service with them and then started playing with them and you know holding them and they were just like attaching to us I mean it was just like so sad how much physical attention they were needing and this little girl came and put her head on my knee and I picked her up and rocked her to sleep and went to put her in her room and I walked into her room and there were these 30 wooden beds and to put an orphan baby on a wooden bed on Mother's Day I just thought you know here I am partying around the world and they're hungry and lonely and bald and alone that's heart-wrenching yeah. I mean, it's, it was unacceptable. It's still, that's the only word to this day that I've ever had to describe it. It was just unacceptable. And we went home that night and I told Chris, I said, Chris, I just have never seen anything so sad in my life. I don't think I could ever go back there. And she said, Oh, we're going back there. We're going back there tomorrow because we are so lucky to be able to be the givers. I mean, when she said that, I just thought, right there, but by the grace of God go, I, I mean, that really could have been me. 
I could have been the one sleeping in that wooden bed. And who, what would I want somebody to do for me? We started going back there. You know, we only went back a few times because our time was almost up, but I mean, it just haunted me, Rena. I never got, I never, still to this day, I'm not over that initial orphanage. But so I decided to open the Miracle Foundation because of that experience. And I called it the Miracle Foundation because I saw that they were little miracles. I saw the human potential on the table. If they were given a foundation, they could just soar. So they were the miracles that already existed and they just were looking for a foundation. And so we made it to September. We quit in September. She was, her boyfriend at the time had come over to meet us in Thailand and they got engaged. And so she was ready to go back home and I was ready to come back home and start the Miracle Foundation. And so we, we finished our trip in September and I filed the paperwork in November of 2000 and started that very year and have really never looked back. That is remarkable. I mean, a lot of people say that they want to do something like that and they try it, but the fact that you haven't looked back, oh my God, that was so pivotal in your life. It changed everything. That moment, that moment changed everything. And then just for fun to tell you, you know, that little girl, her name is Shibani Das. She is in college today. She's becoming a teacher. She knows that she's famous. She's, she knows that she was the inspiration behind this whole thing. And she's just this beautiful young lady who has blossomed into this phenomenally giving person. It's amazing. Wow. What an incredible story. Yeah. Now I want to know her. Yeah, she's incredible. Her English isn't that great, but she's an incredible young lady. She's an artist. Just amazing. I'm so glad to, to continue to know her. And of course, we supported her to get where she is. So it's really, it's really awesome. Okay. So I want to know the nitty gritty too, of like putting together a nonprofit. Like you said, you just filled out the forms, but it can't be that easy. I mean, no, you know what? It was so not easy. I can't even tell you how not easy it was. And I think that the secret to success is the willingness to adapt. You know, so we started off as an international adoption agency. I mean, that's what I thought, Oh, let's just get them adopted. And then I realized, you know, and I got three years into that process and I realized I started doing the math and it's like, oh my God, we can only do about 20 adoptions a year. And the scale of this issue is just, we're never going to touch it. So we had to, you know, we had to come back and recalibrate. And that's when we came up with this idea of the franchise. It's like, let's run all these orphanages that I've been looking at for international adoption. Let's figure out a way to make them operate, you know, very well, very efficiently in a way that we could measure in a way that the kids can be, you know, English speaking, you know, literate, college bound kids. So we did that for about 10 years. That's a long time. We were very successful. I mean, we really had this model down. I mean, we were, we were picking up orphanages, sometimes, you know, five, sometimes 25, sometimes 70 a year. We were just picking up these orphanages, taking them through this process and their kids would just, they would just, the food got better. The education got better. The house mothers got better. The training got better. Their rights were realized and it was just really, really working. But then in 2016, I went on a listening tour and I just wanted to hear from the kids and I wanted to spend some time with them and spend some real true time in these orphanages. And I started hearing from the children that they had families, that they were separated from their families because their dad had died or their mom had died or, or their dad lost their job and they couldn't afford it. Or there wasn't a school in their village. And so they ended up in an orphanage and we could make an orphanage as great as we could, but that's ultimately not what they wanted. They really wanted to be at home and they helped us figure out that if we apply the same kind of principles and the same kind of support to their moms, then 
they could be with their moms. And that would not only, that's not only what they wanted, that's what their moms and family wanted. They wanted so them back. some reuniting. Reuniting is the one of the biggest things we do today. We transition children from orphanages into families as a model. I mean, that is what we do. We get kids home. We get kids home safely and permanently. So living in an orphanage is what you call institutionalization. They're institutionalized. They're in an institution. And we used to have institutions in the United States. We used to have orphanages in the United States. And we deinstitutionalized in the 60s. So we got rid of our orphanages and we came up with the foster care plan and kids that needed to be taken from their families for one reason or another ended up in foster care. And you know how that system is pretty broken today. It's pretty tough. It's not really working for children. For the 425,000 children in the foster care system, there's all kinds of problems, all kinds of issues. It's just not a working model. It's really an old antiquated model, actually. Yeah. And so now that the developing world is deinstitutionalizing, they're going from an institution into family care, what we call kinship care. So we're looking for grandmothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, sisters, somebody that's in their family that can take them out of the orphanage and into this family. And that is truly working. I mean, it's, it, it's permanent. It's safe. You know, families don't quit on people that they're related to. It's easy for a foster family to quit and just say, I can't deal with all this system. It's ridiculous. We really think that the future of childcare and that if any kid needs to be separated is really in kinship care, supporting them in their family of origin, somewhere in their family of origin. And that's really working. What are you finding though? Like why didn't the families take them in the first place? Poverty in a word. So, you know, if your dad died or your husband died, your children would not go into alternative care. You would have a way of supporting them. But when a poor person or when someone in poverty loses their husband, they don't have a choice. There is no way to, there is no welfare. There is no way to support them. The other thing is that what was happening is that they would lose their husband and then their kids would end up in an orphanage. And then that was it. The orphan, the average child would enter an orphanage at the age of eight and the average length of stay was 10 years. So once you're in an orphanage, I mean, there's nothing like, let me get some rehabilitation and, and then take the kids back. There's, you're stuck. You get stuck. What we did was we um, went to these 300 orphanages and we, we had meetings with families. So we told the children, invite anybody you think you can live with, invite your family. You know, we'll, we'll pay for their transportation to back to this orphanage to visit with you. We'll make sure they have breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a place to stay or, you know, whatever. We'll just get, get, get whoever you want here. And so many children, I mean, I would say 80% of the children had a relative that came and took a stand to take, to take them back. And what they really wanted was they wanted to make sure that the kids would be fed and the kids would keep going to school. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. I'm, I'm also curious too, like what did some of those first conversations look like? Very good question. So we hired a team in India to do it. Okay. So I actually never went and chose the orphanages we supported. The, okay. We would have, you know, people that would do that. And so it was very important that they went in teams of two orphanages were, it was like a grants program. So people, orphanages would apply for our work, for our support and our, okay. our franchise. And then we would send a tiger team out to look at the orphanages. One of them would be targeting and talking to the employees and the founders and the executives. And the other one was someone that spoke the local language of the children and they would talk to the children. So we could really see what the story was, you know, does the story line up? And then because we had metrics in place, we were really truly able to figure out if what we were doing was working. So for example, you know, you take the height and weight of every child when you start working with an orphanage and you could measure that. 
And then you take the hemoglobin of a child, which is a little pinprick that measures the amount of iron in their blood. And so, you know, did they get that vaccination we pay for? Are they getting their food? Are they getting clean water? Because the height and weight doesn't go up in the right trajectory if they're not getting the right thing. So there were, there were metrics that we could put in place to figure out if people were doing what we, what we were asking them to do. Never forget the power of a kid. I mean, you have four kids. Kids are terrible liars. They don't know how to keep, they talk. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. They talk. And we would, we would do these things called life skills education. We'd go every month and we train the kids in things like, you know, your body and yourself, the difference between good touch versus bad touch. What is HIV AIDS and how do you get it? Because some of their families, had, some of their parents had died of AIDS. That was a big reason. There were a lot of kids in the orphanages, you know, how to manage your money, how to handle anger, how to handle depression. And so we were going in every month and doing these trainings and kids ended up talking. They ended up taking our people into confidence and, and the people would really get to talk to them. So that's how we really got to know what was truly working in the orphanages or not. And we kept tweaking that methodology and got better and better and better as the, as the years went on about how to really make a, an orphanage where people could thrive That's until incredible. we realized that actually orphanages aren't the way to go at all. And the goal is for us to not even need them. The goal is really a family for every child, no matter where you are in the world, United States, India, anywhere globally, kids belong in families, not orphanages. How are you managing all of this? Not by myself. I can tell you that. <laughs> I've got a great partner and CEO. She's been a good friend of mine for a really long time. She knows how to run a great company. She runs the day-to-day operations. We have a board that is just amazing. And between me and my partner and the board, we come up with the strategy. Nobody is more interested in solving these problems than the people that have them. So to be able to talk to foster families, to be able to talk to foster children, to be able to talk to children that are separated from their families, so much of our strategy comes from them. They are the ones part and parcel to helping us figure out what, what they need. That is a really good point. Have you partnered with foster care kids that have become successful that want to make a difference in that space? The short answer is no, we are working with, we're supporting the people that support the children. So we're providing tools, training, education, support resources to case managers and foster families. And then they help the kids. No one, you know, no one was really doing that. So many people are wanting to help the kids directly, but you really can't ever, even in an orphanage, even in a family, you can't ever really help a kid unless the person that's caring for them day to day is being supported, cared, and loved. Just doesn't work. So that's what Miracle Foundation does. We, we go alongside the people that are caring for children and make them feel heard, give them the resources they need, give them the tools they need, give them the support they need to do a better job. How has this changed your life? I used to have everything that money could buy, but I was unfulfilled. I was empty. I was striving for, I was, in, I was in that rat race. And now I have what money can't buy. I mean, I am so at peace. I sleep like a baby. I'm so grateful to be the giver. Like you said, I'm so grateful to be on this side. I mean, I'm content. I mean, I just have everything a person could want because I think people really ultimately want to make a difference. Oh, I definitely agree with you. Also, yeah. I, I found it interesting that you said that your mom worked with adoption. Did she influence this or is that just a coincidence? I mean, there's no way she couldn't have influenced it, but I didn't ever really put it together. I mean, until really, until we started working in the U.S. foster care system, which was only three years ago, you know, it was three years ago that we started working in the foster system. And I was like, oh my gosh, my mother would be using these tools. These are the tools that my mother would have been using. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah really crazy. And 
have there been some little miracles along the way? Oh yeah. I mean, we were working with orphanages and trying to train them on how to rehome children, you know, get them out of their institutions and close down. You know, I met this, actually, he's a real, he's a prince. He's the prince of Norway. And he was the ambassador to the Vatican. And he's, you know, the Vatican, the Catholic church has so many orphanages. Maybe you can partner with some orphanage, you know, so I went to the Vatican, we met a group of nuns and we started working with their orphanages. We picked up 70 orphanages that very day and they're all rehoming their children. So, I mean, yeah, there's these really big, these really kind of huge breakthroughs, huge breakthrough blessings. It's amazing. That's crazy. Like I truthfully had no idea the amount of orphanages in the world. And this is, I'm so glad we get to say this because it's so true. Wherever the money goes, that's where the kids are going to go. If any of your listeners are funding an orphanage, I'm here to tell you that it's misplaced money because that is where kids are going to go. We really should not be funding orphanages anymore. We should be funding families, funding organizations that take care of families. All of this money that goes to orphanages, it pulls children in. It makes poor women and men look at those orphanages and say, you know, I'll never have a computer in my house. Let me put my child in an orphanage so they can get an education. Wow. That's a big, I I feel like misinformation. It's a myth. It's a myth that they all belong there. It's a myth. Is there anything else that people might not know? I mean, one thing is that, you know, we we know that 80% of children that are living in an orphanage actually have a parent or relative that they could live with right now today. 80%. And a lot of times it's just a grandmother or an aunt or a, you know, I mean, it's like, it's not a far distance. It's not like a, you know, third cousin twice removed. It's somebody they knew when there was, when there was a problem. That's a huge percent, but it is, it, it is a big responsibility. I mean, do you think that the reason the families aren't taking the children is just primarily financial? Yeah. Oh, definitely. This is an issue of poverty. And so what, one of the things we're doing is we're, we partnered with UNICEF. We're training government officials. So we train 3,300 government officials a year on what to do when a child is in, when a family is so poor, they can't take care of their child anymore. Can we get, keep them from ever entering the system in the first place? Because the minute they enter the system, the damage is done. Same thing with foster kids. The minute they enter the system, the damage is done. And do we really know how to differentiate between poverty and neglect? You know, just because someone is poor is no reason to separate them from their mother. And then, like I said, what kind of poverty are we talking about here? When no one loves you, that's poverty. Have you reconnected with families that are like, I'm sorry, I don't want to do this? Definitely. It's really the children. The children say, I'm just not going to be safe there. They have the right to be heard and participate in decisions that affect them. And this is a decision that certainly affects them. So they are part and parcel to this this whole thing. They know those five well-being domains. They know what we're looking at. They know what the measurements are. They not only agree, but they are the ones that tell us who they think they can live with and who they think they would be safe with. That's great. You said children don't lie. <laughs> they don't lie. And you know what? They're pretty darn savvy. I mean, ask your child, you know, boys about eight, girls about six, have this kind of cognitive leap and they know who they're going to be safe with. And they know if they shouldn't go home. Wow. I love everything that you're doing. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to talk about? Yes, actually, you know, just for your listeners, you know, I know, like we talked about, everybody wants to make a difference and I'm telling you, we are in a hurry. We can't wait until the end of the year to write a one-time check to the nonprofit of your choosing and hope, you know, and, and not think about it again. 
we as normal people who are on the side of giving that we want to be on, you know, we're not, we don't have to be the takers. We can be the givers. Our behaviors have to change. We have to start making commitments. Like, so for example, whatever nonprofit that you're supporting right now. So hopefully everybody's supporting somebody that's doing something other than themselves, taking care of somebody besides themselves. Hopefully everybody's doing that already. we cross that barrier. If you're not, and you're not supporting an organization or somebody that's doing something, people and planet, those are the issues right now. Your people and the planet, pick one of those two, find somebody that's doing it, hopefully for the poorest of the poor and support them. And then figure out how much you can afford, add a little money to that and donate it every single month. Because that's the biggest difference between working for the corporate world and working for the nonprofit world is in the corporate world, you knew how much money was coming in. Not knowing how much money is coming in is a very difficult way to run a business. And so we work with our donors to please commit monthly so that we can we can budget against that and know exactly how many kids we can say yes to. I am curious too, like what does it look like to support one family? To get a child from an institution and back into a family Full boat, never have to really touch it again is about $1,260, $1,260. That's going to make sure that the child continues to go to school in a great way, a good school. They can make it all the way through, through college with that, believe it or not, all the way through college with that. They will get counseling. They will get health care that they need. They'll get the living conditions that they need, and they will be safe and permanently placed in a family that they're related to for $1,260. I cannot Nothing. believe that you can make all of that happen for that price. All of that happen. And that's what a lot of our donors do. They tell us, I, I will pay for five kids a year, you know, and then that's how we know how many kids we can, we can rehome, but we will reunite about 2,300 children this year from institutions into their families, 2,300. That's remarkable. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. I can't wait to hear what my dad has to say about this. He's I can't amazing. either. Yeah, I can't either. He's definitely going to be touched. I mean, this is like giving on a scale that he could never imagine. It is. And I I invite any of your listeners to join me in it because it's so powerful. What a perfect investment to invest in children. They're such a smart, it's such a smart investment. Oh my gosh. And it's really honestly like the perfect time for the story right at the end of the year. That's where people (laughs) love to give. I know, I know. That's the kind of behavior change we're talking about. You can't just give it Christmas. I mean, we just can't do it. It's, it's not anymore about generosity. It is now about justice. You know, it is not just for us to let some children languish and have other kids just get everything in the whole life. That, it, it's, not, it's not just. So, you know, before we were kind of depending on the kindness of strangers and the whole generosity thing. And now I'm saying it is we must do our part because it's just, we got to equal it out somehow. I mean, I'm thinking of the wooden bed and I, it honestly reminds me of like the barracks in the Holocaust. That is what it reminded me of too. Like, what are we, we're just going to let that happen. And, you know, I look at those people that, you know, that didn't want to get involved in the war and the Holocaust. It wasn't our problem. And, you know, it's like, we're, you know, and, and we look at them now and think, God, are you crazy? I mean, you didn't, you were not, you were not going to get involved in that. You were just going to let that kind of genocide happen. And that's kind of how I feel today. That's how our kids are going to look at us. You knew these kids were languishing. You knew these foster kids could have a chance and you didn't do anything. You just let them languish. Are y'all nuts? Who are you? So just like you got to meet that child, if someone sponsors a child, can they communicate with them at all? No. That's a really, I mean, I know that's great. Donors just love that. It makes you feel so connected and it's real, you know, it's not good for the child and it's not good for their parents. 
it is emasculating. You know, that little boy, Manus, Manus's father knew very well that Manus was not going to be able to survive without my friend, Chris. Imagine how that feels as a father. Ask your dad about that one. You know, it's very emasculating to these people. That, that makes sense. Um, yeah. And then the whole sponsorship thing, you know, thank you so much for my food and water. I mean, what kid of yours is grateful? I mean, they are not grateful people. They shouldn't be grateful. They shouldn't have to thank anybody for their existence. And for basic and needs. Basic. You know, thank you so much for my education. I mean, come on. It's an issue of justice at this point. We just can no longer pretend that it's somebody else's problem. We have to take responsibility. And that's really, I'm so grateful that's what I did that day. I had the ability to respond and I took it. And that's what we really all have today. We have the ability to respond. Okay. So let my listeners know how they can respond. Well, hopefully you'll get involved with Miracle Foundation. We hope you do. The more people that we can possibly have supporting these kids, the more kids we can take care of. We, you know, it's easy to scale. So monthly commitments, they're called heartbeat contributors because they're like the blood that runs through our very veins. If you want to donate monthly, that is so powerful. Go to miraclefoundation.org. Remember that it's about $1,260 a child. So any kind of, you know, the more you can help the number of kids that you can help a year, just think about it that way and, and do it now because we can't wait. They're waiting and a childhood's a short time in our life. So we are in a hurry. Definitely. Is there any information that you want to promote about how people can connect with you? Yeah. I mean, you can go to miraclefoundation.org and take a look at our work and take a look at our uh, ratings on all the charity watchdogs. I mean, we're the highest rating on all the charity watchdogs and we'd love to hear from anybody. We're saying by 2040, we can have no need for orphanages. And we don't just mean that with Miracle Foundation. We have, we partner with 156 other nonprofit organizations that are working in foster care and orphan care. And we're saying these days are over. We are going to fix these systems. You are a ringleader. Badass. <laughs> I'm determined. I can't wait to hear what your dad has to say. Oh yeah. Me too. <laughs> have a great rest okay. of your day. I'm going to have my coffee now. <laughs> Good, do that. Bye. Bye. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. You know, I always wanted a Thelma and Louise adventure where I could leave my job, go with a best friend, and cross many cultures. Well, what a great experience it is, especially if you're on a mission. And isn't it a coincidence also how you went to apply for a job at a news channel and you ended up going down the hall to the Jerry Springer show for the internship? And this girl is going to be a uh, salesperson at Xerox. And she runs into someone. She looks professional. And a family business said, why don't you come work for the TV station? And that got her started in sales and building a network and meeting all kinds of connections and people where that was an unbelievably better job. And in those days, some of these corporate rules and obligations that they put you under where you can hardly even breathe. It's unbelievable. And yet she still has her way of thinking that you have to be organized. Like the the term franchising, if you go to McDonald's in Kentucky, or if you go to a, a McDonald's in Israel, if you go to a McDonald's in New York City, everything tastes the same and you get the same beautiful service and quality. Shouldn't that be the same formula for our children? And yeah, it's pretty remarkable that she was able to apply that to foster care and orphanages. What a miraculous setting. What a miraculous achievement to be able to help children of all walks of life. 
and where they have inalienable rights and not where they have to beg or thank people for some of the simple pleasures in life that we should all have access to. She's made an enormous, enormous difference. What's really funny is because you even mentioned isn't a lot of the disturbance of how a child is raised is how much money you have. And yes, it takes money to do anything and and run any business or any organization. You have to be able to balance your costs in order to spend certain revenue. You have to have a certain amount of revenue coming in. No question about it. But what did she say? That when she was in India, she got to see how poor people were. And it wasn't the fact of whether it was money or not, is that some of these places, the children are treated in a manner where it's just deficiency of food or utensils or or tools or education. But there's absolutely no love or compassion where a child just feels completely like a lost soul. And to invest in your children and to invest in the world's children, shouldn't they also be on some type of equal footing? And isn't that what part of the mission that God has us here to do is to figure out how we can build a future for all children? I think so. And it's really crazy, even the amount that she mentioned, as far as it doesn't really cost that much to give these children an efficient organization. Yes. And you have efficient management and you have people in the right places doing the right thing and offering the same concepts where you can mass market it, where you can duplicate it. Isn't it funny? But love is the number one thing on the list. And yet still to this day, we don't know how to duplicate that necessarily at its highest efficiency. Pretty funny. How many people are lacking love? Many. Maybe a good question to ask your viewers. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 